The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What's left to do after you've quadrupled a company's share price, achieved a knighthood, and rolled out a series of life-saving cancer drugs? Welcome to The Exchange, the podcast by Reuters Breaking Views that interviews CEOs and business leaders from around the world. This week's guest is Pascal Sorio, Chief Executive of AstraZeneca. Sorio took the helm of the oncology giant in 2012 when investors were fretting over patent losses and lackluster growth. But 10 years on, the big bets he's made on research and development and the small competitors he has hoovered up have certainly paid off. I sat down with Pascal for a Reuters Newsmaker event where he explained why he has so much more to do that budding competition from China poses a threat to big pharmaceutical companies and the unintended consequences of a cap on U.S. drug prices. Hello and welcome to this Reuters Newsmaker. I'm Amy Donlan and I cover pharmaceuticals for Breaking Views, which is the financial commentary arm of Reuters. I am delighted to be joined here today by Pascal Sorio, the chief executive of AstraZeneca. To the general public, he's best known probably for bringing a vaccine for COVID-19 to the masses. But to his shareholders and the business community, he's also somebody who's known for taking the helm of a bit of a sickly pharmaceutical company and turning it and quadrupling the share price. Um, Pascal, it is a great pleasure to talk to you today. Good afternoon, Amy. It's great to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Pascal, you have quite a big anniversary coming up, right? So it's 10 years since you took the helm of AstraZeneca. Um, In that time, you've fended off an approach from Pfizer, arguing that AstraZeneca would be better off on its own. I think we can all agree that that's probably the case. Um, And you've also been very, very successful in the oncology space, although it is extremely competitive. As I said, you you brought this vaccine to the world, even though AstraZeneca wasn't really a vaccine maker. Um, and you managed to get a knighthood as well under your belt. Um, I'm very curious, Pascal. You you kind of put these this this rumor to rest. But what is left to do for you at AstraZeneca, and what what's your next mark that you're going to make on this company? Well, it's a great question, Amy. But um, you know, in our industry, we cannot be bored, and we are never finished with the work we are doing. As long as people will be sick and uh, suffering from diseases, we will continue working and science is exploding in cancer, cancer care, in cardiovascular disease and many, many uh, diseases. And uh, every day there's something new to do. And the last 10 years, my whole life, but especially the last 10 years has been about working on discovering new medicines that make a difference for patients, uh, at least in the areas where we focus. And there will be more to come. Um, I can keep doing this this job for many years. And the next step for us is to make AstraZeneca even more successful and bring even more uh, products to patients who suffer from cancer, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, or, or uh, rare diseases. I guess I suppose what I'm wondering, Pascal, is if, if you were thinking that you had been as successful as you are, and you're kind of staring down the barrel of, of quite a tricky global economic environment, not least for the pharmaceutical industry, which, you know, there's price caps in the US uh, and, and inflationary costs, right, which are affecting the pharmaceutical industry. So even though it has been sort of recession proof in the past, 
um, there are very heavy costs that are coming down the line. It wouldn't, you don't, you don't think it would be the, a, a nice time to say, well, there's my mark and, and off I go. <laughs> no, actually, I mean, you know, I like challenges. Uh, I came to AstraZeneca many years ago, coming from a great company called Roche, which is one of the most successful company. I could have stayed there and uh, do well at a great company. I came here because really I saw that uh, I thought that AstraZeneca had a great future, um, but was going through a tough patch. And um, it was a challenging time. And, you know, we've worked very hard. The entire team at the company has worked very hard for the last 10 years. And so I like challenges and I can definitely keep doing this. You know, I think the the future of the world is really about innovation. It's about science and innovation. If you look at all the challenges that uh, mankind has gone through over the last number of thousands of years, it's all about uh, inventiveness, about innovation, finding new solutions to the problems we face. And in our industry, we, of course, deal with diseases. And um, now is the time to work even harder on, on finding innovative solutions. Absolutely. Um, and Pascal, the, this newsmaker is kind of interactive. So we've got questions coming in from the audience and we've had a huge amount of interest um, in speaking to you. So I will shoot to one of those questions and I can follow up with my own. Um, but one of the questions that's come up is we're coming to nearly a thousand days since Brexit. How has this impacted AstraZeneca's investment decisions related to both R&D, so research and development capacity in the UK and in the rest of the world? Actually, you know, Brexit hasn't had much impact on, on our industry, quite frankly, or, or on, on our company. As I often tell people, you, you know, we're based in Cambridge and we do R&D mostly in Cambridge. And as I often tell people, Cambridge University attracted great people 800 years ago and will continue to attract great scientists for many, many years to come. And so for us, we are essentially an innovation science-driven company so being based in Cambridge in the UK is really one of the best uh, places you can do science and uh, innovation. So it hasn't really impacted us, hasn't changed our strategy, hasn't really affected our ability to attract uh, talent and uh, great scientists. So it has, it, of course, it has had some impact on logistics, um, on regulatory affairs, on how we manage the company, but it's really marginal, quite frankly, overall. Okay. And a big part, uh, Pascal, of your time at AstraZeneca has been, I guess, rather bold M&A. Um, even in the middle of the pandemic, um, you, Alexi and that news, I remember coming out on a Saturday, quite a massive deal in the middle of a pandemic. Um, do you think there's still scope for, for big M&A for AstraZeneca? Do you, do you think that there are pockets that you would like to fill. I think I, I read a quote from you recently saying that the pruning phase is over and you kind of are, are looking for growth now. Is that is that growth that's going to come internally and, and also externally? Yeah, we have actually indicated to uh, investors that we want to be a growth company, a sustainably uh, growing company. So until 2025, we have strong growth ahead of us. But, you know, we also believe we can continue to grow very very, uh, very strongly post 2025. And it's again, all about innovation in the pipeline. So we focus on our internal research and development efforts, but we always look for external opportunities. The world of science is a big ocean and uh, we have to look for ideas and projects where they are. So definitely, I mean, 
our focus is mostly on small to mid-size, uh, what, what is called Bolton acquisitions. So uh, products or small companies that we can integrate in AstraZeneca and add value to. But, uh, you know, election was, of course, a one-off in 10 years, but it doesn't mean we can't do it again, provided it really fits our strategy, uh, provided we can add value, provided we think uh, we can integrate the product or the team, the company that we acquire, we can integrate them. They, they fit culturally with our company and geographically, geographically we can execute on the integration but essentially driven by, by our strategy and, and focusing on, on, on what we want to achieve as a, as a company. And Pascal, I mentioned, obviously, oncology. Um, you've done extremely well, obviously, with your latest um, breast cancer breakthrough. Um, do you Are you happy with the mix of businesses that you have now? Because obviously, Alexian has allowed you to kind of move into much more into rare diseases. If you were thinking about either bolt-on or bigger M&A, is there an area you'd really like to beef up in that space yeah i mean i think in oncology you know we are not finished we've done a really a lot of progress we have a tremendous pipeline we've impacted uh, several types of cancers more recently as you know uh, breast cancer was on her too um, but we have many more uh, products that will continue uh, improving the care of uh, cancer patients but there's much more to do um, cancer continues to kill people so a lot more has to be done in terms of early diagnosis and new treatments. But beyond cancer, there's a huge unmet need still in cardiovascular disease. People forget this, but cardiovascular disease continues to be the biggest killer in the world ahead of cancer. People die of, 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 of heart attacks, they die of kidney failures, uh, heart failure. So we want to continue building our portfolio of innovative products in this area. The next one is uh, asthma and COPD. Those are respiratory diseases that also kill patients. Um, and you know, many people think asthma is just a minor disease that you treat with a few puffs of an inhaler product. But in fact, severe asthma can kill people. Um, so there's a lot more uh, improvement we can bring to treating those uh, conditions as well. And of course, rare disease is like a huge space of many, many diseases that are each of them very small in terms of the number of patients they affect. Um, those are terrible diseases, but small number of patients. But when you ag aggregate them, it's a large number of the population that is affected by rare diseases. So still a lot to do. Absolutely. And this is a, a question from our audience, Pascal. Um, very interested to see and very pleased to see AstraZeneca's interest in rare diseases and whether you have any plans for taking ALX drugs globally so making them more accessible, maybe like vaccines like you've done. Yeah, I mean, essentially we acquired Alexion because number one, we thought they have um, uh, good science and, uh, and good potential, but also because we thought we could add value. We could add value in two, in two ways. One is expand the, the uh, network uh, around the world and bring their products to people in many countries, not only uh, US, Europe, um, Australia, Japan, where Alexion was strong, but also the emerging markets, China and the rest of the international region. So that's one area where we can add value to the company and to patients by bringing those products to patients. And of course, we have in those countries to find different ways of bringing those products and come up with creative schemes that allow patients to get access. 
uh, at a reasonable cost. The other area where we thought we can add value is on, on the science part. And we've created those bridges, internal bridges between the scientist at AZ and the scientist at Alexion, working on the technologies that AZ has developed over the last many years, increased CRISPR gene editing technologies, oligonucleotides, uh, siRNA, et cetera, and apply those technologies to find new uh, products for rare diseases. And vice versa, the knowledge that uh, Alexion scientists have in the complement cascade, apply that knowledge of the complement's immune system to diseases that are relevant to our focus in cardiovascular disease, for instance. Um, but in terms of your questions, the expansion to these uh, uh, emerging markets, the international region will, of course, have to go with new ways of uh, helping patients get access to those medicines. And Pascal, what are the ways you mentioned kind of coming up with schemes that would allow people to get better access to either expensive drugs or bringing down the price of drugs? What schemes do you think are effective in doing that? Are there, is, there, is there an example you could, you could tell us about that you think is, is effective or that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, we have to realize the these products are going to remain expensive anyway. Uh, so if you look at Soliris, which is one of our most uh, important uh, product in the rare disease franchise, it's expensive product to manufacture and there's not much we can do about this. So there's a limit to how low we can go in price, but but definitely we need to make it more affordable. And the way we do this is a variety of, uh, of uh, solutions. First of all, we help, uh, we work with uh, governments, payers to pay part or all of the cost with patients when they have to pay themselves. We actually come up with schemes, for instance, like we ask pay, pay, patients to pay for a couple of months, three months and of the year, and then we give the rest of the year for free so that we make sure we reduce the cost to the patient without reducing our price and creating a um, export parallel export uh, uh, situation around the world. So, so that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, there's a variety of options that uh, we consider. We also are working with private uh, insurance companies in China and other countries to stimulate the development of a private insurance industry that would cover some of those medicines and help uh, patients. So there's a variety of efforts we bring to, to help improve access, but it's clear that these products are not vaccines and we can't make them accessible to every single person around the world like we have done with the vaccine, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, the US is a an area which maybe has gone for a much more blunt approach to bringing down drug prices. Um, I just wondered, Pascal, what are your thoughts on that, that, that legislation that's going through um, and whether AstraZeneca plans to take any action, whether legal or otherwise, that, to, to maybe fight that? Well, first of all, there are some good things in this new legislation, uh, um, in particular for patients, really. One is... Uh, the uh, copay cap. Um, you know, the problem in the US is people pay large amounts of copays. A copay is a fraction of the cost of the medicine that patients are asked to pay out of their own pocket. And that creates an issue because it affects compliance. People take their drugs and then they stop and they start again because the copay uh, are too expensive. So the government is introducing a copay cap that ultimately will be $2,000 a year. 
So people will know they will never pay more than $2,000 a year for their drugs. That's very, very relevant because if you have to take an expensive innovative products for cancer or somewhere or some other conditions that is expensive to treat, if you know it's not gonna cost you more than $2,000 per year, um, it is really quite meaningful for patients. So that that's really a, a good one. What is more challenging is the decision the government has made to reduce price um, and they say negotiate. It's not so much of a negotiation, really. It's sort of an imposition of a price. We don't know how this will happen, um, but it will start from 2026 onward and they will start with 10 medicines and then another 15 and we'll add more every year like this. And essentially the problem with it is it will only protect um, in a way, the price for about nine years for small molecules and 11 years for large molecules. The challenge with this is that it only gives nine years to recoup your investment. And so, for instance, if you look at cancer, very often um, a new medicine in cancer will be developed in late lines, third, what we call third, fourth line of treatment in patients who progress through various rounds of treatments and essentially have no other options. So we start treating them with these new medicines. But those are smaller group of patients, of course, because unfortunately, many have died before. Um, and then you move up to earlier lines to what is called adjuvant, very early lines of treatment where you can actually cure people. The problem is if in the future, companies have to launch a new product in cancer in a late line indication with a small indication, and the clock starts on the day you launch in that small indication, that small indication will last maybe three years before you get to the earlier lines and have bigger turnover. So in the end, you end up with maybe five or six years only to recoup your investment and that will not work. So companies will delay the launch of uh, new products in late line indications. That's unfortunate because patients will, will suffer and, but companies will have no choice because you have to protect your ability to invest in, in further R&D. Um, companies are also likely to move away from small molecules and focus on large molecules that are longer protected. So that, that legislation hopefully will be a, able to be adjusted over time because it has, it will create a few uh, uh, reactions or behaviors that are not healthy for, for anybody, quite frankly. So hopefully negotiation of price is one thing, but the way it's done can be modified. So these incentives negative incentives, I would call them, are, are, not, uh, are not affecting too much R&D. So it will the... affect innovation overall, for sure. But within this overall if, if effect on innovation, reducing innovation, there are some very, very substantially negative incentives that need to be uh, addressed. Yeah. So is the idea that there would be less choice? Is that sort of what you're thinking is the sort of the, the side effect of this of this legislation? The side effect would be two, on two fronts. First of all, it would be less choice overall because there would be less innovative medicines being developed. And that's, that's really for sure that will happen because there's no way that um, it can be otherwise. But within that limit, more limited choice, the second effect that it will have is that it will delay the launch of new cancer medicines, for instance, um, in small indications. Companies will have to wait till they are ready to launch in the large indications when they can um, deliver larger revenue and, and cover their uh, R&D investments. 
And so launches in small indications like we typically have done in third, fourth line breast cancer or lung cancer, that will be delayed until you have an approval for a first line indication where you have more sales. And that, has, that, is, that is an incentive that hopefully can be a negative incentive that hopefully can be corrected uh, because it's, that's going to be a real problem. So as a, like a live example in her too, that you just, um, you know, have basically had some very, very positive uh, indications from, what would the impact of this legislation be on a drug yeah, like that? You know, a couple of examples, one is on her too, another one is Tyriso for lung cancer, which we launched many years ago now. But if you look at NIR2, and you know, it would be applicable to many other cancer uh, drugs in the future, we launched NIR2 in late lines. So you know, when, when you have a cancer, whether it's breast cancer or lung cancer, um, if, you're not, if you're not diagnosed very early and you're not cured, then unfortunately, you start with one line of treatment that delays the disease, and then you progress. You get a second line of treatment, and then you progress again, and then you get a third line of treatment, and each time, these lines of treatment delay the disease progression, but they don't cure you because you're a metastatic patient. So we developed on her two in late line, third or fourth line, patients who've received several rounds of treatments, including chemotherapy. But that is a small group of patients. And so for the first three years, essentially the cells of an her two are not that large. Now we are getting to first line and then becomes much larger. The pool of patients is much larger. And the sad effect of this legislation is you we would probably not launch in this fourth line because then the clock would start then, the clock that de defined this nine-year period after which the government dropped your price. Because if, if, if the clock starts there for three years, you have low sales, and then you start enjoying higher sales after three years. And in the end, you only have six years to recoup your investment. It doesn't work. And that's that's the issue is that you know those patients in well third fourth line patients they need the medicine. It's going to be a hard break because we'll have to we'll you know we'll want to bring these medicines to patients, but uh, at the end of the day we have to develop the products, the products so it it will recover the the investment in R and D. And Pascal, if your I suppose lobbying efforts don't work um, in relation to this legislation. Do you have sort of a plan B in mind as to as to how you might might make changes? Yeah, you know, we'll we'll basically have to cross that bridge when we get to it, of course, and it will be a case by case situation. Not every product is the same, not every circumstance is the same. So it'll be case by case, but generally, and it's not only for us, it's for the entire industry. Generally, the plan B would be simply that uh, companies will wait until they have data in earlier lines of treatment larger pool of patients to launch their products or so products will be launched later. Okay. And that's not much, there's not much we can do um, because ultimately we want to launch as early as possible. And until now the race has been to launch as early as possible to help those patients who need the medicines. But if you can't make it work financially and recoup your R&D investment, then you have to change the model. And the only way to correct this is to delay your, the launch. Okay. So we've got another question from our audience, and this time it's with regards to artificial intelligence, which I know is a big topic in pharmaceuticals. It's hard to get sort of, sort of information, though, about what an impact this is really going to have on businesses. 
What I've been asked is what technologies excite you most when it comes to rare disease and which areas of artificial intelligence are most helping your business? Um, so so are, are there two questions here? What areas excite me most in rare disease? And, and Well, it's more to do with the artificial intelligence artificial in relation intelligence. to the rare well, disease. Does it help, I suppose, in, in, that, yeah. in that scenario? Yeah, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, helps us across the whole range of uh, activities in our company. If you define artificial intelligence as being uh, uh, broadly, and if you define it as using data, big data, to inform what you do or to do your job better, that affects the way we manufacture products in the factory. Essentially, we use artificial intelligence now to predict when and if a machine is likely to fail. The past has been like we wait for the machine to fail. We don't know when it's going to fail and then we fix it. And now we actually use data to predict, uh, you know, how, how, how an equipment is doing and whether we can, we, we should uh, intervene and do maintenance earlier. In research and development, we use it in research to um, use, to, to, uh, to analyze large databases of genetic data um, and other type of data, proteomic data, uh, genomics data, all sorts of data points. We integrate all of this and we look for patterns and we look for new uh, targets that we could go after um, to develop new medicines. In development, in clinical trials, we use it uh, to run our clinical trials uh, in a more efficient manner, uh, lower cost, faster, uh, make it easier for patients. So it really applies to a whole range of activity in activities in our in, in the company, all the way down to um, applying it to our commercial activities to identify patterns in um, how patients are, are being treated, to identify how our cells uh, teams are operating, making sure we are compliant as an organization. So analyzing data and using artificial intelligence to look for patterns um, and new leads is, is really something we use everywhere these days. Right. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm going to move away now from, I guess, the US. I'm kind of very interested to hear about your, your thoughts on China, because obviously the zero COVID policy is still in place and there are still lockdowns in place. Um, you, I would imagine that AstraZeneca have modeled as to what, what this long term policy could do to your business. And, and do you have any thoughts on, on what it could do to your business? Because obviously China is a big growth area for you. Well, actually, yeah, China is, uh, is a big country, of course, lots of people, and uh, and for us, it's a big, uh, big, big, big uh, market because we are the largest pharmaceutical company in China, and it's really driven our growth as a company for many years. It is again not affecting us in a in a very big way. I mean, the the uh, log the so the isolation, if you want, um, of China. The, borders being closed has affected logistics, of course, supply chains. And our teams have done an amazing job uh, managing these challenging supply chains issues that we've experienced, like many other industries, quite frankly. So that, that has affected us, but we've managed through this. The lockdown in China itself has affected us, like you know, lockdowns in Europe and the US have affected us at different time points. Need to remember that um, we talked a lot about the lockdown in, in China, but it affected only 20, 20, 25% of the country. 
Shanghai and a few other big cities, but only 20, 25% of the country, the rest of the country was operating as normal. Um, and we worked through this. And unfortunately, just like in the UK, Europe and elsewhere, it affected the ability of uh, the healthcare system to process patients and diagnose cancer patients early. And so it's delayed uh, diagnosis of uh, severe diseases and of course then the treatment of those conditions. Um, but we're coming out of this and you know our team there has managed very well through all of that. We are doing quite well. Our uh, business is doing well in the third quarter of the year. So the first uh, half was a bit more challenging with this COVID uh, effect, but we are we're picking up. And overall, um, you know, China remains a very um, dynamic market. Lots of innovation, uh, people, you know, making really rapid progress on many fronts. So if, for us, it's a very key country, not only to bring our medicines to patients, but also tap into the local innovation. There's an enormous amount of innovation in China and you really want to make sure that uh, you benefit from this to bring bring those new ideas and products to patients around the world. And is your plan, Pascal, to expand into China? And if so, what does that look like? Are you hiring more people there? Are you in negotiations with the government on pricing of drugs? Yeah. I mean, basically, the government in China is doing what everybody else has done in Europe and in the US and elsewhere over the last, what, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe. And that is two things. One is uh, reducing the price of all the medicines uh, through renegotiating price, launching generics. They've made sure that uh, the generics that are marketed these days are good quality generics. Before, there was too many generics, poor quality. People didn't trust those generics. Um, so they've now <clears throat> re-approved generics that uh, meet appropriate standards. And through those, they've reduced the price of all the medicines. On the other hand, they've invested in innovation, uh, funding, reimbursing new products that are innovative. But of course, with uh, price negotiations, like, like is done everywhere else in the world. So the market in, in many ways is really um, normalizing, if you want, in the sense that uh, we have to bring more innovation and 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 uh, and negotiate prices, um, but for us it really really remains a great priority because the potential there is is enormous. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned obviously supply chains. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, do you have a sense or a forecast on costs as to what what's going to happen with your your input costs as in do you see your margins being squeezed by the supply chain issues that are going on or the ways you can mitigate it? Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on inflation, because obviously there's there's headlines here about the UK reaching 18% inflation and and throughout the world, uh, I think everyone is talking about inflation. Yeah, the question is whether inflation will last uh, or be, uh, or moderate itself. Um, we suddenly assume there will be ongoing inflation, um, probably not at the level we experience right now, but there will be ongoing inflation for sure. Um, and that really means that, again, we have to innovate the way we operate. Um, back to artificial intelligence, we are working very hard on what we call the smart factory, which is really, again, using 
artificial intelligence, digital tools to improve productivity in, uh, in our plants, um, improve productivity also in the way we deliver, deliver our clinical trials. So it really forces us to increase our efforts to become innovative and more productive. It, you know, we can't expect our prices will go up, selling prices, I mean, we are in a world where our prices go down, in fact. In the US, by the way, people talk about increasing prices. Usually those are list prices, the net prices after rebates given to what some call the middle, the middlemen, the PBMs and others. The net prices in the US have been declining for many years. The problem is those rebates have gone up and up and up. That is not been addressed, by the way, by this Medicare legislation. It will have to be addressed at some point. There's an increasing amount of money that goes into this middleman that is a real problem. But our prices on a net basis are declining everywhere. So we really have to become more productive and come with innovative medicines that enable us to grow. And, and Pascal, I, I'm very keen as well. I know that lots of people are interested. I, I have I've heard sometimes you get slightly irritated with the vaccines because obviously it is not a, not the biggest part of your business, but certainly an area people are interested in and looking at the questions that seems to be. So I was leaving it to the end. Um, but I, I guess I'm curious. I mean, looking at the vaccines that you know European countries seem to be prioritizing, they seem to be looking at the mRNA. I'm wondering what you think the AstraZeneca vaccine, like what place do you think that, that that has sort of in the future of sort of COVID-19 prevention? I, I don't, uh, it's a great question, Amy, but I don't get irritated by this uh, question or the vaccine itself. I get irritated sometimes by, by things, but no, certainly not, uh, not there, not more than anything else, to be honest. If I look at the vaccine, I mean, vaccines are not a part of our original strategy. There's something that... Um, we have engaged because at the time we wanted to help. Um, and as together with it, by the way, we developed uh, antibodies. Um, one is Evushel for patients with immunocompromised, uh, immunocompromised patients who need to be protected against COVID. We have another one called Nirsevimab for infants, babies who risk uh, being infected with RSV, another very common respira uh, respiratory virus. So those antibodies are doing extremely well. Actually, Evushel Global is doing extremely well. Nirsevimab will be launched uh, next year, and we expect that it will do very well. Um, the vaccine itself, I can't get irritated. I mean, you would, you can't get irritated when you save 6 million lives plus. I'm sure you saw this analysis that showed the vaccine saved six, more than 6 million lives. Everybody... And you know the media, let's say, and it's not it's not it's not critical. It's just a fact. The media tends to focus on the Europe, Europe, and the US. Now you got to think that by the time you've put Europe and the US together, you have ten percent of the world population. Mm -hmm. You have ninety percent who live outside of Europe and the US. So the world is a big place, and this vaccine has made a huge difference to all those countries that are low middle income countries. Um, and that's how it has saved more than 6 million lives. In India, 90% of the people were vaccinated with this vaccine. In, in Brazil, 60 plus, et cetera, et cetera. And so it has made a huge impact. It has helped those countries, those populations, but it also has helped Europe and the US 
by stopping the virus from circulating through these populations and mutating in those populations and then coming back as a new variant back into Europe and the US. So the vaccine has helped um, everywhere, everybody around the world, but mostly those countries, those populations. So honestly, I don't think, you know, I can't get irritated. Would I have preferred to not have the setbacks we did? Of course. But that's basically the name of the game, if I may call it this way in our industry, you face setbacks. You know, sometimes you succeed, sometimes you succeed less, sometimes you fail. Um, and you have to look at the overall achievement, the over, overall, not look at one part, but overall. And overall with the vaccine, we've saved more than 6 million lives. The question for us now is where do we go from here? And that's what we are thinking about. What technologies do we need and how do we potentially build um, our presence in this field? And that, that brings me on to a question just from our audience again. Um, with the success of the COVID-19 vaccine, will there be more investments in biologics and new vaccines? So this would be, I guess, um, AstraZeneca becoming a, a vaccine maker like GSK. Uh, also exciting to see that AstraZeneca is moving into gene cell and cell therapy. Are you working on a second generation COVID-19 vaccine to counter different strains and mutations? Yeah, so first of all, Amir, remind everybody that our focus is oncology, cardiovascular disease, respiratory immunology, and, and rare diseases. And we are now looking for what could we do in this vaccine and immune therapy space, if, if you want, right? Immune therapy, antibodies, there we really have a good portfolio that we're building. I said the COVID, um, RSV, but we're looking at other uh, viruses that we could uh, target with with antibodies, and and and, and in vaccine vaccines per se, I I can't I can't be sure we will be there or not. The only what I can tell you is we're working on new technologies, new approaches to COVID for sure. But also we'll be looking at new approaches, new vaccines for uh, other infections. And the question is really uh, the technologies we use and how we go about it. And I can't be sure today that. Um, we'll be able to build a, a vaccine portfolio, but suddenly we are looking at it right now. But you know, if you go back 10 years ago, in oncology, we had almost nothing. In fact, I would argue to say we almost, we had, we had zero. We had a few old products, but no new products. And today I would hopefully not be arrogant by saying that um, we have one of the best portfolio of cancer medicines in the industry. I'm not saying we're gonna do this in the vaccine space, but you know, we suddenly will work hard to look for uh, new products there too. Absolutely. I mean, Pascal, I, I suppose I'm very curious your thoughts on where we are in the pandemic at the moment. Um, you know, if I was coming in on the tube today, not a single person in a mask. China has taken a very different approach. Friends in Hong Kong are wearing masks to go for a run. Where do you sit in all of this? What, what do you think? I mean, again, countries are still buying up. They're still buying up vaccines. I mean, do you think that we're headed for another wave? Do you think that there is a mutation that's out there that would be would be damaging again and, and could lead to lockdowns? What are the kind of scientists you're speaking to telling you? Well, you know, I think it is really hard to predict what will happen, right? Even the experts, um, to be honest, get it wrong from time to time. I mean, this 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 is biology. This uh, this virus can be very hard to predict. But I I think that. Um, 
you know, on an individual basis, basically, I think people have to be cautious. I mean, wear a mask when you think you sh you can be exposed. If you are in a large population, in a closed space, uh, be careful because um, there will be uh, there will be waves. I mean, COVID is here to stay, and it's very contagious, and it's sort of. Um, go through the population uh, very rapidly. Now, the reality of it is now that most people have been vaccinated. Everybody has a foundational immunity with you know, two, three or four doses of the vaccine. You have, a, you have a foundation that protects you against severe disease. And then the question is, how often do you need to get boosted to maintain that protection against severe disease? To me, it's not very clear yet how often. Do you need to do it every year, every two years, three years, four years? Not clear. What I think is clear is you need to protect the people who are vulnerable. So people who are older, maybe, then they need to be boosted more often. Um, and people who are immunocompromised need to receive a, an antibody like every shell to be protected, which is what many countries are doing. And then it, you're left with the healthy, younger people who are healthy. It's not obvious to me that they need to be boosted every year, quite frankly, because they have this foundation immunity that protects them. If they are infected, they may, they may, they may have no symptoms, which is the case for many, many people, or they may have symptoms that are uncomfortable, but doesn't bring them to the hospital. And if you get a boost, it will give you a boost of antibodies for three, four months, and then you drop back to this foundation immunity, which is supported by what is called the cellular immunity, your T cells and your B cells. And that protects you. The antibodies that protect you when you're boosted for three, four months, really. Mm -hmm. So to me, the focus should be boosting people who are at risk, elderly people, et cetera, and protecting the immunocompromised who don't respond to vaccine. And those can be protected with antibodies. Mm -hmm. And then for everybody else, take, take reasonable protection, wear a mask when you think you should. Maskell, with the benefit of hindsight, and obviously I, I know that you're very pleased, obviously, that you were able, able to save lives. And as I mentioned, AstraZeneca was not a big vaccine maker. Would you have done anything differently around the communication about the efficacy of the vaccine and, and I guess the dispute that sort of erupted between the UK and Europe? There was no dispute between the UK and us so in, in terms of the vaccine. You mean? The yeah, I mean there was obviously there were there were issues with vaccine. There were there was a a discussion or a debate about vaccine hoarding at the time and whether you know where ah, it was manufactured, who owned what. There right. was there was quite a lot but, of discourse yeah. about that. Yeah. So I would say that um, first of all, you can't regret anything when you have. Uh, saved more than 6 million lives, right? Um, you can say, well, some things didn't go as well as expected, um, but it's always nice, always easy to be smart uh, with hindsight and after the facts. So there's not much that can, I can say we would do differently because many of these things we didn't expect. Um, the supply issue we had with Europe and that created this tension with the UK we didn't expect. I mean, we had a supply chain ready to go in every geography of the world. And the supply chains work very well in most parts of the world. It, in the UK, it worked very well. Unfortunately, we had issues in Europe. Um, but it was limited to Europe. And it created this issue where people thought we were prioritizing the UK at the expense of Europe. We never intended to do that at all. But we had separate supply chains 
And, uh, you know, there was no way we could take from one place to another because we were structured in a way that uh, every geography had its own supply chain. Um, but, you know, that's this is the kind of thing we have in our industry. You develop a product and you have issues. Today, we have a great oncology portfolio. We have a product called Infinzi that is saving people with many different cancers. A few years ago, we had this study called Mystic that failed and our share price dropped 15%. On that day, you know, we didn't look too happy or too smart, right? But you look at, you have to look at things over a longer period of time and look at it in aggregate, not look at a single singular part of what you're doing. And if you apply this lens to the vaccine effort, again, overall, it's been a, a tremendous success. What would have happened if we had not been here? And I'm not saying a minute, we are perfect. We are far from being perfect. But if, if this vaccine had not been here and three and a half billion doses would not have been injected because there was not enough from uh, enough vaccine to go around anyway. And all these countries would have been exposed to, to COVID. So I think if you look at it that way, you have to say it was a great success. Within that overall great success, there were a few setbacks for sure. But again, again, another point I would make is when this whole vaccine uh, campaign, if you want, started and several companies started, um, there were 130 or 40 vaccines in the in 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 fact in um, laboratories and universities and everywhere. Everybody and their neighbor had a vaccine. How many made it? Very few. Many failed, right? And and you know, if we had not been here again, basically, the world would have had a big problem because there wouldn't have been enough supply. So this is the sort of a lens you have to apply. Many people thought it was impossible at the time to develop a vaccine to be ready by the end of 2021. Remember, many experts said it's impossible. They are dreaming. Several vaccines made it. The Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, J&J ourselves. So, you know, what we achieved was, as an industry was really quite remarkable, I think. In our case, we did well in some parts of the world and not so well in other parts, but it was part of an overall effort across the industry. Okay. I mean, Pascal, I have one more question for you, if it's, if it's okay. And again, it's a popular question uh, from our audience. What is your view? What is your view about the future for the next ten years in the pharmaceutical environment? So, how do you think the pharmaceutical environment is going to be over the next ten years? I think science will continue to explode. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, cancer as one example, cardiovascular disease, new innovation, innovative products are coming. Rare disease. If you look at uh, neurosciences, the science is probably where the science in cancer was 10 years ago. So over the 10 years, the next 10, 15 years, I'm hoping that new products will emerge for the treatment of uh, uh, CNS, neuro, diseases of the, neuro, the, the, the uh, central nervous system, sorry. Diseases like Alzheimer, multiple sclerosis, uh, Parkinson disease. And if you look at technologies, I think what will happen is a multiplication of technologies. The history of the industry is to develop small molecules, chemicals that you put in a tablet, sometimes in an injectable forms, but those are chemicals, small molecules. Then large molecules, antibodies were developed, 
25, 30 years ago. And today you have oligonucleotides like siRNA, mRNA. You have cell therapy. You have um, still, of course, uh, small molecules, large molecules. You have bispecifics. You have all sorts of large molecules that are bispecifics, very complicated. You have antibody drug conjugates. You have protax. You have so many different technologies that are enable us to develop products that will target a disease in many different ways. So the future of the industry is really a, an explosion of new technologies that will change the nature of the industry. Because again, historically, you would develop a small molecule. You would have it for yourself as a company for, let's say, 15 years. Then the generics would come and the price will drop. And then, by the way, society benefits from these products for you know, 10 cents a day for the rest of uh, history. But that was the model. The future, I think, is going to be uh, more technology, so probably less room for generics, but a faster pace of renewal of products. And then competition from China. China is becoming a global competitor very rapidly. So more technology, more products, more competition, and as a result, uh, probably lower prices as well. Very interesting. Um, Pascal, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time and uh, hopefully speak again. Thank you, Amy. Great to speaking to you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on a cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.